This is Live at Politics and Prose, a program from Slate and Politics and Prose Bookstore in Washington, D.C., featuring some of today's best writers and top thinkers. Dr. Brittany Cooper is an Associate Professor of Women and Gender Studies and Africana Studies at Rutgers University. She also believes that black feminism can change the world for the better. She is the, yes, clap it up for that. She is the co-founder of the Crunk Feminist Collective blog and the co-editor of the essay collection that she has under the same name, which was published in 2017. We also have a few copies of that in the back as well. Um, she is currently a contributor at Cosmopolitan.com and a former contributor, contributor to Salon.com. Her cultural commentary has been featured on many places, but just to name a few, the, like the Washington Post, NPR, and NBC. And so Damon Young, who will be leading the talk tonight, um, he is the editor-in-chief of VerySmartBrothers.com. He is currently a columnist for GQ as well, and also working on an essay collection that is being published by Echo, which is an imprint of HarperCollins. So let's start our discussion about Eloquent Rage. Hello, okay, all right. So I have to just say this is a little disconcerting right now because it feels like there's like some segregation going on where all the white people are like on the left and I don't know if that was intentional or something, that's just kind of weird. Um, <laughs> it's almost like I'm at church <laughs> or something. <laughs> yeah, well, is this is this Wakanda in Poland? Like, what's what's happening here? Wakanda and elsewhere. Yeah. Um, okay, so that aside, um, first time I met Brit. Hey. Wakanda has diplomats. Yeah, yeah, and spies. Yeah, there she is. Wakanda has spies. Yeah, okay. There we go. <laughs> wow. I mean, we could just talk about Black Panther. Like that could just be the whole conversation tonight. We could we could do that. I'm down. I mean, everyone's, there's no spoilers anymore. It's Wednesday. Yeah. Um, in fact, we are going to talk about Black Panther, but that's going to come later. But uh, so first time I met Brittany, this was in 2015, I think. We were both on a panel at Harvard. It was Panama and I, Panama Jackson with VSB. It's also here with, the, with all the stuff he has going on right there. Yeah, the camera. Um, <laughs> And uh, Kim Foster from Fort Harriet. So it was us four on a panel. And the first time I had met Brittany in person, and I, I'd read her work and followed her and, and everything. But I remember thinking maybe five minutes into the panel that I don't need to be here. Because she was sitting next to me, and everything I would have said, she was saying better. <laughs> she was saying more articulate, more articulately. She, um, po more powerfully, it felt like, like, you remember, you've seen that meme of, like, Homer Simpson where he's, like, at the bushes or the hedges and he just backs away. That's kind of what I wanted to do. Because I, I was like, I don't need to be up here. I just need to be in the audience and listen to you. Um, and so, where does that come from? Welcome. That, it, it's, it's almost almost like a spiritual like stream of consciousness that happens when you speak. You know, I saw it with your TED talk. I saw it with the panel that you were on. Um, and I, you feel it sometimes when you write too. So again, is that something that you've always had or is that something that you developed over time? Or is it something you're just figuring out you had for the very first time right now? You know, I don't know because I don't totally know what you're talking about. But, um, <laughs> but you know, I mean, look, I think like part of what I'm trying to do in this book is make sense of um, is make sense of that thing. But I would, I think my mom would say that I always talk too much. I mean, every report card I ever got was like, Brittany needs to exercise self control, and now I just want to go find all my teachers and be like, how you like me now? <laughs> you know. Um, but that's the. So I don't know. I mean, I think that. But I also think like. <clears throat> Part of 
means to grow up in a family of black women, at least in my experience, is that you do sort of become refined in the art of like verbal combat, right? Like you have to defend yourself. You have to sort of know, you know, my mom is, you know, anytime I would do something sort of messed up, she would be like, but why would you think that, you know, and anytime a black girl begins a question with, why would you think this? You know, you sort of have to have a rationale. And so I think that there's like a sort of rhetorical training that black girls go through. And then, you know, I mean, it's, it's a lot of school and also a lot of like being mad at white people and wanting to take them down. Yeah. That it's also at the core of it. Yeah, it felt like how I felt when I was listening to Black Black Thoughts freestyle uh, a couple months ago, where he just was. It's almost like it was almost like an out of body experience. Well, that's a high compliment. Uh, well, thank you. I mean, you deserve it. Um, okay, so the book, Eloquent Rage. Um, now, in the first uh, early on in the book, you talk about how this concept of of rage was something that you fought against. And you didn't, you didn't not want to be known as one of those, one of those angry black women. And then um, a student approached you, um, a former student, I guess, approached you and complimented you on it and, and said that your, your anger was an elegant rage, was something that, you know, she had never heard those concepts and those those ideas articulated the way that you did. Yeah. So can you tell us about just that process of accepting that anger and using it to challenge, or u- using it to channel, and also create the work that you do? In, in the book, you also talk about how the Williams sisters are great examples of that, where they use that, that power and that rage and to do what they do on the tennis court, so. Yeah, um, so this is a little so so the person who actually called me out was in the audience. Um, so Erica is right behind me. She's right here. Hey, hey, Erica. Yeah, Erica. <laughs> You're famous. <laughs> I've been for many years. So it's so good to see you. Um, so Erica took a seminar when I was a graduate student instructor. And then some months later, you know, we saw each other. And Erica's brilliant. Um, one of the best students I've ever had. Um, and we were just, you know, shooting the shit. Uh, and she was like, you know, I used to love to listen to you lecture because it was like the most eloquent rage I'd ever heard. But I was probably 26, 27 at the time. And so I was in the middle of a PhD program and battling against being in predominantly white spaces where anger could be used against you, where folks would say, you know, um, you're, you know, you're being angry and emotional. And I had a reputation for sort of giving professors the business and giving students the business when they weren't tight. Um, and so I was fighting against my own rage. And, I, you know, and I sort of looked at Erica and I go, like, I'm not angry, I'm passionate, right? Which had become my party line. And she just sort of pinned me. And Erica can call you on bullshit. And she's always very kind when she does it. But she was like, you know, you're angry. Like, you know, it just wasn't like, that's bullshit and you know it. Um, it was the first time that I'd had a black girl call me on it. And I knew she was right. There was a truth telling in that moment that has stuck with me for the better part of a decade. Um, where I had to own that she had tapped into something that was true for me and that I was deeply uncomfortable with, which is that I was angry as fuck. Um, I had been through a lot, some of which I chronicle in this book. I was also in institutions with white people, and that's just a sort of structural sort of going through a lot if you're a black girl. Um, And so in that moment, the thing that I realized, though, that resonated for me, Erica, was you said this thing to me about how in some ways, that was the thing you loved. It was the fact that it was the thing you loved about the teaching that empowered me to sort of get to this moment because you, in that moment you sort of said, made me feel like there was something unique and authentic about what happened when I owned it. Um, and so I hope I'm owning it uh, fully now. So that, that's, that's how I sort of got there. That in the owning it, rather than the fighting against it, maybe I could harness it and use it for my own good. Um, and that's what I love about the Williams sisters. I grew up watching them play tennis. I have watched their entire career because my mama was a tennis fan, so I was I grew up watching tennis in general. Um, and I remember at the early part of their career, they had so much power, right? And white sportscasters would be like, they're just playing power tennis, which was their way of saying we're angsty because white girls are getting smacked all over the tennis court and we don't know what to do about it. And so, you know, so what I loved was watching them play that power tennis. And what I love even more now is what happened over the, you know, two decades they've been playing, where they learned to harness it. So 
they always have that kind of power, but now you can't have a more precise shot than Serena Williams hitting a winner down the line. I mean, it's one of the most beautiful things that there is, right? And there is nothing more precise than watching Venus Williams play tennis on grass courts. Like, you know, because she figured out her surface, she figured out a sort of precision around how to take her body and harness it. And I think every black girl has to go through that journey. Um, what is your particular power? And there's a way that it looks messy at the beginning. And if you own it, there's a way that it, you are unstoppable. Okay. Um, see what I mean? <laughs> uh, and so it's, <laughs> um, and it's great that, that Erica is here. And you know, you uh, you talk a lot in your book about black women, about black friendships, yeah. black black female friendships, and how you know they've been so vital and so instrumental to who you are, to how you see yourself, to yeah. how you want to live. Um, you talk about Beyonce, um, about how one thing you you greatly appreciate appreciate about her is that she has never. She has always been very vocal about the the importance of sisterhood, um, and so you even talk about how feminism um, to be a, a true feminist can be somewhat erotic. Um, do you want to expound with that? Yeah, I mean, well, let's just go right to it, uh, Damon. Um, you know, look. So it, I, it's in your book. <laughs> when you write a book like this, you're like, oh shit, am I really going to say all this stuff? Mm. People will actually read it. Um, it's very different than, you know, academic books, which, which is what I'm trained to do, and so trying to be that vulnerable. Um, my commitment to doing that is about the fact that I really want black girls to feel like there's a space to have a conversation. I mean, a lot of times we don't get to have conversations in their complexity, and it's like, if you actually ever hang out with black women, you get like the black thoughts spitting and like some crying and some, you know, wine drinking and a fight, like all of the things happen in the space of a, you know, um, so anyone who knows me knows that my homegirls are my soulmates. Um, I would say that anywhere. I would say that um, to them. And I think we live in a moment, we, we came up particularly in the 2000s where black girl relationships get sensationalized in order to save television, which is a waning industry. Now we're all peak black television, but let's not forget the shit show we were in for a decade where, and I'm not saying I didn't watch reality TV, I did, but, but the bread and butter of reality TV was black girl conflict, right? And isn't that interesting that that is what our industries use, black women's emotional labor, whether we have it together or we don't, to save industries, to save country, you know, black girl voting save countries, black girl pain and anger saves television and gets us to this moment. Um, and for me, it was about recouping the fact that in my worst moments and in my best moments, my girls are the ones who cheer. Um, one, I have like some crews of homegirls and they overlap. They have different names. Um, the Ratchets, the Crunks, the Ninjas. Um, <laughs> my Ratchets last night, I mean, I'm a black girl. So last night when I got home to the hotel from my first day of being on book tour, my Ratchets had had chocolate covered strawberries sent to the room. Okay. Um, you know, just that kind of care and love. Mm -hmm. So I would say that. But also, um, the erotic piece, the thing that I wanted to, to do here is to say that I think that black feminism is a queer project. And I wanted to distinguish that from the idea that that means that if you're a girl that you have to want to sleep with other women. I wanted to think about black feminism as a space that is a joint and communal space between queer and straight women because it has always been that. But also to think about black feminism as a place that black women can learn from queer people how to love each other better. So. You know, I'm a fat black girl, and for most of my 20s, I'm in my 30s now, and I sort of figured out how to kind of get the love that I want and the relationships that I want. But in my 20s, when I lived in Atlanta, and Atlanta's terrible, and there's a hellhole for dating. I love Atlanta, and it's terrible in a hellhole for dating for black girls. Um, and I was a fat black girl, a nerdy black girl. I really struggled when I lived in that space, and I could go years without compliments, without touch, without any of that. And in my 30s, some of the crew, some of the black girl magic that showed up in my life, you know, I just had homegirls who, who are themselves queer, but who would be like complimenting me on my ass. And I'm like, well, what's going on? Well, why are y'all? And they're like, no, your ass in that dress, yes. And I realized like, but it was either them doing it or the dudes that never showed up never doing it, right? Um, 
And in learning to embrace that, they sort of helped me to reclaim my confidence and embody an embodiment that I didn't have access to in my 20s. Sometimes those are the only folks that I get compliments from. And I have a partner, but he's a dude, and you know, dudes don't know how to talk all the time, right? <laughs> uh, so, you know, um, so yeah, like, that's the thing that I wanted to hold, is that sometimes we are, black girls are conditioned to be deeply uncomfortable with that closeness. Um, and I want to say that for me, that closeness will save our lives. And so it can be powered by erotic energy, and sometimes that can mean that maybe you do fuck girls, or maybe you are queer. But it could also mean that you don't want to fuck your homies, but that you do exist with them in this space that blurs some of these lines that we are so deeply invested in maintaining. And for me, the best feminism asks us to challenge those lines because it leads to a better quality of life for us. Okay. Um, well, that is quite radical, at least, you know, um, in terms of what I've read and what I've heard and people talk about in terms of feminism, in terms of womanism, in terms of um, friendship between black women. And so that concept has, at least that concept articulated, how has that been received? You know, I don't, I mean, here's the thing, right? I think that the saying of it can make people feel some type of way, but I think if you actually ask black girls to look at the practices they mm -hmm. engage in, that I'm just naming a set of things that I already see black girls doing. And I'm not saying that you have to go send your homegirl sexy compliments if that ain't what y'all do with each other, right? Because that could be weird. But I am saying that what I want to honor and represent is the fullness of black girl friendships and all of the different ways that that can look. Like, I got homegirls who, one of my homegirls, like, rescued me when I couldn't figure out how to get my academic book to market because I had overthought it and she just edited the shit and was like, you need these 12 pages being, you need to let these 13 pages go. So she is the like my, my intellectual muse that I call, right? And then I have like the girl who, you know, the homie who flies in and is like, but your fashions are off and we're gonna go shopping, right? Um, and then, you know, I mean, I literally just have folks who help me get my life together and who look out for me. And then I have the sort of homegirls who flirt with me because in some ways the way their way of seeing me is they see that I'm dope in a world where black men are often don't see girls like me as being dope, right? Um, so yeah, that's, I just want to, you know, sort of say for black girls, I think that's revolutionary. I think that's something about the kind of vision that black women have for the future. I actually think we get it far more right on friendship than we get it wrong, and I don't think we get enough credit for it. Um, it's the reason I wanted to ride for Beyonce in this book, because I hated in 2013 and 2014, like the way that black feminists came for her. I just thought it was bullshit, and I'm an academic, and I read all of these, you know, but she's a capitalist, and she's ensconced in the system, and I was like, and you're saying this shit on Facebook, and it's the fucking system, like, you know? <laughs> I just was like, these, these critiques are facile, they're not well thought out, and my black feminism works on the premise that black women are human beings first, right? And other people were sort of coming for her, like, she's a brand, she's a gimmick. And I was like, nah. I was like, I think that her dude is probably tripping and she's probably trying to figure it out, because she's bad, and when he met her, he was the it dude, and she was on the come up, and now she has surpassed him in many ways. And how do you navigate that when you love somebody, right? That was the thing that I thought in 2013. In 2016, with Lemonade, I was vindicated. Right? <laughs> um, but, you know, but I spent a lot of 2014, like, writing theme pieces, being like, why the fuck is this happening? And so in this book, I just went back to an old definition that Beyonce said when she said, you know, look, I'm a feminist in a way because I love being a woman and being a friend to other women. And in this book, I say that should be feminism's tagline because I'm very tired of a sort of feminist, woke feminist performance that is like, you know, the intersection of the whatever. It's like, look, I mean, I got academic articles on intersectionality if you want to read it. It's not about the analysis. It's about the fact that if you have the analysis but you treat people crazy, then are you really revolutionary? Are you really about freedom? Are you about sounding right while you live in all the way wrong? Right? Wow. Um, you know, it's great that you bring up uh, Jay-Z and, and the relationship with Beyonce and how I guess she's replaced him or she surpassed him. Um, in terms of status, in terms of being like the the biggest and the the most popular one in the relationship, um, and in the book you you talk about the relationships you have with white women, you've had with white women, and also with black men. You know, particularly uh, the chapter about your dad, um, which you know out of out of the chapters in your book, that one is the one that resonated with me the most. 
Um, and just a little background here, I'm, as, as was said in the introduction, I'm writing a book right now, too, and I'm trying to work through some things, some thoughts with my dad, too, because, okay, my dad is one of my favorite people, taught me how to play basketball, taught me how to write, taught me how to make cream of wheat. Um, you know, yeah, he, he's done all, what, what's wrong with cream of wheat? Okay. No, I, I, you could eat both. You could eat cream of wheat and grits. Okay, I'm sorry. Yeah. I feel like you've written about this. I have written about this. Yeah. Okay. You, oh, um, that's, that's, we'll table that. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, and so, yeah, my dad, you know, is this, you know, this integral and instrumental, like, part of my life. And he has been, he's one of my favorite people, one of my best friends. But I also think about him in context with my mom. And, you know, my, my dad for some years didn't have a job. And so my mom was the one who was the breadwinner. And, you know, and my mom passed in 2013, had cancer. And she was a smoker for 30 years. And I think about if some of that added stress, you know, if maybe she didn't have that, maybe she would still be around. And so, you know, just trying to think about that and process that with the feelings I have about my dad. And now your your situation with your with your dad is is um also very, I guess, complex and nuanced. And do you want to talk about that? Yeah, um it's that's probably the most personal uh, chapter of this book. Uh, I tell um I tell my mom's story. You know, I asked my mom if I could tell her story and her story is that uh, my mother had me when she was 18, and at that time she was dating my dad, and she had broken up with a dude she was dating prior to my dad. That man was jealous and angry with her for that choice, and so he came and tried to murder both my parents uh, while my mom was pregnant. With um, and many, so my story sort of starts with both my parents being shot, and then um, when I was nine, my dad. Uh, was dating another woman by then. A uh, man tried to come in and um, threaten her and her children with a gun. My dad stepped in to protect her and her children, and he got killed. And so I try to think about, but my in the middle of all that, my dad was a terribly abusive alcoholic who terrorized me and my mother. So I try to hold, how do you deal with a sort of patriarchy that my dad's story is one that in, on two occasions he gets shot because of men attacking women he loves. And at the same time, who he is as a father to me is a man who attacks women, right? Um, and I, I talk about the sort of conundrum where when men try to co-opt, you black men often get defensive when you think you try to talk about black men in violence. And when they try to co-opt it, I've had brothers say to me, you know, because brothers are victims of domestic violence, too. And I say to them, yeah, I know. Because my dad was a victim of domestic violence, a fatal victim of it. But he was also a terrible perpetrator of it. So I try to hold that complexity in this book. Um, and one of the things that I try to think through is, one, I think sometimes black women get short-circuited when we try to name our pain. So we name it, and then folks say that we're bitter, and they stop listening. Brothers get so defensive, and they use as the excuse that they are maligned in the culture because of white supremacy as a way to not hear. So I tell my story. I tell my mama's story. I tell my grandmother's story, and I tell my story as a kid witnessing. You know, my mom is like, I cannot believe that you remember all of this stuff. And I'm like, oh, yeah, I was four when my daddy did X and five when he did such and such. You know, your kids remember really young, right? And I remember those things. So I tell the story of being a kid witnessing the way that my father was destructive. But I also try to humanize him because there was how I experienced him and there were how the other folks in my community experienced my dad as a sort of charismatic, very deeply empathetic, sort of really smart kind of dude. And I'm always like, well, how do those, these two things go together? And so I wanted to, I don't ever, my politic is not such that I need to demonize and dispose of black men in order to say, your actions are terrible um, and devastating, and you can do better. And so me trying to figure out how to hold space for my dad in this book, because clearly 
his, his life has so fundamentally impacted my life and his tragedy has so fundamentally, has been so foundational to my own sense of self. Um, so I wanted to hold that. But one of the things that I also, you know, wanted to think about is a lot of times we have a, you know, um, we have a thing in our communities where brothers can be empathetic, political, and get it right publicly and then be terrible people at home, be terrible people to the women in their lives. Um, and I, you know, and I wanted to try to get at that conundrum. What is the thing that is happening with black men uh, and black women and their daughters? Um, and is there a way to sort of tell that story without like throwing brothers away? And I just think I'm always really disheartened by this conversation because I feel like the finger pointing starts. So because I had the opportunity to write a book and I know most black girls won't get the opportunity, then I just went for all the things we don't get to say. So I talked about the daddy shit. I you know, had some feelings about black men who date white women. I went ahead and talked about that. Um, I did. I talked about it. I didn't talk about it as a, like, y'all shouldn't do it. What I said and what I'll say to you, what I call on brothers to do in having all these really hard conversations with them is, um, but can you at least acknowledge, like, I tell this story about, like, don't tell it directly, but when I was a student at Howard, I went to Howard and H you okay uh, and so when I was a student at Howard this kid was like a big sort of kid on campus I was on the on the on the metro and I was talking to my homegirls we we're talking about interracial dating and he just looks at me and goes why brother gotta be a race man in the bedroom right and that question has always why brother gotta be a race man in the bedroom right and I and the thing so I try to get at that right why is it that black men think that they can be political in every part of their lives but the bedroom because black women don't enjoy the luxury and so when black dudes make dating choices what they tell themselves is that in the era in the in the in the arena of intimate relations that shit ain't political it's totally about personal preference and choice and that's complete bullshit it's just absolute bullshit so bro you want to be like a rah-rah race man but you don't think that like black girls get to give you the side eye when you are black down to everything but your draws your draws ain't black your draws are white and that you know what i mean like we get to talk about that like we actually there's some things that we get to say about that and black girls get to have feelings about that right um and so i go for the shit and i'm like look people may think that i'm retrograde but Brothers are always talking about how they feel women's side eyes when they date and interest in choices. And it's like, well, let us tell you what the, what the, the side eyes about. So I try to like hold all of that without making black women seem retrograde and without demonizing brothers and withholding like black men go through a lot. Black men have the right to whatever intimate choices they want. But this idea that you can be, but I do want black men. My black feminism says that black men have to think about if you want freedom, then you do have to think about how politics shapes every area of your life. Yeah, and you do a great job of that in your book. Um, you, you know, I guess the, the, the most succinct way of saying it is that you explain, but you don't excuse. When you're just explaining, um, I guess, how black men's politics and, you know, and how, and how, yeah, and how that affects interpersonal relationships. And it's, you know, they say we we're going to come back to Black Panther, and that's actually a great segue because, you know, in the, the married conversations about that movie and just uh, the conversations on top of the conversations, you're seeing a lot of these conversations about uh, Eric Killmonger, the character uh, Michael B. Jordan played, and how it, it is a little, not, not shocking, but a little surprising how quickly people are so anxious to grab on to his politic and this is the person we should have been behind. I'm Team Killmonger in this excusing the fact that like in the first 15 minutes of the movie he kills his girlfriend. Like thief boo, he just kills her for no reason. And then chokes out one of the you know one of the elders and kills another one of the women. I mean and I guess I just um hey hey no we hey it's too bad. Sorry. It's Wednesday. It's Wednesday it's Wednesday. Sorry. It's Wednesday. Hey. It's Wednesday. Hey, y'all should have been there at the beginning of the conversation when I said we were going to talk about it. So, yeah, it's Wednesday. It's too. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> we actually haven't spoiled any of the plot for you. 
Well, we, yeah, it's not. Not really. But, um... <laughs> but, yeah, just the, just the fact that so many people, men and women too, were so willing to just overlook that because of his, you know, of his, of his, um, of his, I guess, superficially pro-black um, politics and ideals. And again, that just touches on a lot of the concepts you bring up in your book about, you know, just excusing certain things and and giving and allowing certain things to ride and not actually calling people on it and recognizing that, hey, yeah, maybe you are revolutionary, you know, a revolutionary in public, but, you know, you're also violent. Yeah. I mean, um, yeah, I mean, the thing that I'll say about that is his character, that is the problem, right? Is that the reason that folks excuse it is because we have learned to excuse and accept black men who are radical on racial politics, radical on class politics, radical on a notion of pan-Africanism, but trash the black women. That's, you know, killing and or being abusive to and or disregarding the concerns of black women is, con is considered an acceptable casualty for the sort of black revolution that many black men want to bring. Um, and that character represents that. So it was always interesting to watch, you know, it's been interesting to watch brothers sort of ride for him and talk about him. Um, and, you know, look, I think that there are real conversations that we could have about this movie in terms of, like, do we have to accept that African-Americans are the broken people in the system, right? And mm -hmm. I think that that's the reason that folks want to recoup him. But I do think that we have to ask why everyone is just so comfortable with a black freedom project that is predicated on the disposability of black women, right? Um, because we don't actually require brothers to do any emotional labor because we step in and we do it for them, right? Um, so we don't require them to think to think about what a freedom vision would look like that is inclusive of black women. And one of the things I say in this book, because we haven't talked a lot about the ways in which I do try to think through the conundrum of white women and feminism as well, um, is that that's the thing that black men and white women have in common that white women aspire to the kind of power that white men have because they live in close proximity to it, and black men aspire to the kind of power that white men have because the only thing that keeps them from it is white supremacy. Black women are the only group in the country that really does not look at white men's level of access and power as what freedom is, right? Because we have never had any level of proximity to it, um, not structurally anyway. Um, and so I try to think about that. That is the reason, too, why I sort of, um, why a lot of this book, a lot of the book thinks about sort of relationships between black women and black men, not just intimate relationships, but familial. But I also think a lot about connections between black women and white women, because I do think that white women have to reckon with the fact that one of the reasons that black women find it so hard to get on board with the project of feminism is because white women's particular articulations of feminism are often so much about how can they get everything that white men have. And my sense of being in community with black women is that black women sometimes look at the demoralizing ways that white men move as people in power around the world and say, those aren't the kind of people we want to be. Because if that's, the, if, that's what look, if that's what having power looks like, we don't want any part of it, right? Um, and that is also the reason why I sort of say that, like, look, it's not that I don't think that there's some black girls that are not quite right. I think that there are plenty of black girls that, like, you shouldn't fuck with them and they need to go to therapy and they need to pray over them and shit. Like, I think I'm not trying to say that black women are, like, actually a pure category morally, but I am trying to say that structurally, the same things that we lament about the ways that systems of white supremacy and, and patriarchy suppress us also give us a particular angle of vision so that we don't romanticize that shit. So that we see that that kind of power and money, like, we're not looking at white boys sort of having their fantasy playground moment. I mean, that's what the Trump presidency is, is white boys being like, oh, we can do every single thing that we ever thought about wanting to do to these people. Like, we can do it. We got all this power and money, and we can do it. And we're watching them do it. We're watching them literally just smash the world to pieces, right, while tell, telling us that they're building something great. And, and, you know, black women have literally been peeping game and being like, yeah, but we knew that's what y'all were going to do because we've been watching y'all do that since Timmy was smashing shit on the playground. 
and talking about building edifices, right? Um, and so there's a view, there's a there's a there's a level of insight that black women have that comes from structural oppression, not from like a sort of pure moral core that I think um, is worth celebrating and is worth lifting up in this book. And that's the thing that I try to do when I ask people to sort of shift an angle of vision, of, of vision to thinking about what are the things that black women know about what a freedom project actually looks like. And I think the things that black women know from where I sit have to do with like deep relationality, with patience, with the ability to tell the truth and still love people at the end, with the ability to tell the brutal truth to people and still be like, but I will ride for you. I tell this, this, I say this shit about brothers, but let something happen. I will be in the streets and it's not a conversation, right? And I will run up on any white person who tells me anything other than that. That is my commitment. But I also had that commitment to white girls around me too. Like I get mad when people are like, but they're rich and white. I was like, they're rich and white and beautiful and it still didn't protect them from being victims of all of this massive male violence. So because I'm actually a feminist, then I believe that any time a woman says she's abused, A, I believe her, and B, if we see that that shit is a structural problem, we are responsible to act. And so I'm not here for a black feminism that can't hold space because white girls are sometimes racist, because we're very good at holding space even though black men are sexist all the damn time, right? <laughs> and so that is what I'm saying about the complexity of what it means to try to be a black feminist is that it calls us to a level of political clarity that is very hard to hold because sometimes it has meant, like in this, I mean, in this book you will see, I be out here having to ride for white girls around me too, and sometimes it kills me because I know how treacherous Becky can be. I tell all the stories about growing up with none but white girls for friends. Because that's where I grew up with, I had white girls for friends. Because I grew up in a predominantly white town and I was in honors classes and they didn't think black kids were smart, so that meant you, had, you were the black kid in the class, you had white people for so I talk about that and growing up in that kind of treachery and also then coming to this place where one of the reasons I escaped to Howard because I was like, you know, I mean, it was Wakanda before we had Wakanda, right? It was like, I need like healing balm. And then, you know, but at the same time, like my politics says, I actually believe in systems. And that sometimes means I have to ride for people even when I don't ride for the persons that they are. But I always ride for the people because I believe systems tell us something about like, like look, I think white girls, the last thing I want to say about this is, I think white girls have a journey to take and I think that journey is about really divorcing themselves from the desire to have what white men have. And I think that until they really are committed to taking that journey, black girls have the right to give them every side eye in the world. But I also think that if we're going to hold complexity and part of what it means is like, but when we see these terribly massive stories about white women being abused, to me that just means, well shit, if it's happening to white girls like that, what the fuck is happening to every other woman who don't have that kind of power, money, or beauty, right? Yeah. All right, uh, and time for questions. You can go to that mic or this one. Hello, hey. how are you? So I was wondering, I have not read your book, I got it from Amazon last night, and I was working all day today, but I was wondering, um, since it's an autobiography, how much, if any, um, inspiration you got from Dr. Jackson's assignment in freshman comp at Howard? Yeah, this is one of my oldest friends. <laughs> so, we met the first day of classes at Howard um, nearly 20 years ago it's not, it's not actually an autobiography, it's, it's personally driven essay, so I tell a lot of my story, but I try to get at them through you know, a sense of argument. Um, I don't think I would be a writer without Lawrence Jackson. Um, that was the hardest writing class I've ever fucking taken. Um, yeah, and you know, the thing that I hope in this book, um, it was at Howard that I figured out that maybe someday I might wanna be a writer. I always wanted to be a teacher. Being a writer wasn't actually my goal. Um, and I think the thing that I'm like hoping that I'll aspire to in terms of like if I write more books, um, I feel really tired right now, so I'm not actually planning more books. Um, but if I write more books, you know, I want to grow as a writer. Like I don't think I've reached my level yet, and I think the thing that I love about that, and I, this, you know, both of the books I've written are in many ways love letters to Howard. My academic book starts at Howard. My this book starts at Howard. Um, because Howard is the place where I went as a black girl who had been in many ways so wrongly conditioned by growing up in the Deep South with white kids 
and was the place that I went to undo and to heal, and it was the place that sort of spun a level of possibility for me. Um, and so I hope that comes through in this book. But the other thing that Howard spun for me is like a really high standard about what it actually means to be good. So I don't think that my professors at Howard would read this and think it was good. Um, but I do think they would read it and be proud, and that's that Howard thing, right? Where they always push you to be better, but they're like cheering for you because they know you got it. Um, so two things. One, um, really quickly, I can't believe that when you did teach me and when I was an undergrad and you were a grad student, I was very angry because it was Dr. Bird's class mm -hmm. and he was supposed to be teaching that class. <laughs> And I was like, why do I have to suffer through this person? But uh, um, I, you know, was able to experience your magic then, and I'm so happy that so many other people get to experience it now. So I'm glad that I know the circumstances that he wasn't teaching weren't good, but I'm so glad that I was able to take your class. And then the other thing that I wanted to say or ask was um, kind of caping for black women puts you at odds with everybody it seems and you know on Facebook I see you battle a lot with you know white women saying you're not doing the thing brother saying you're not doing the thing and I just wanted you to know that we got you and we appreciate you riding for us and we will always ride for you thank you I love you thank you and you know I wanted to call this book never scared precisely <laughs> um you know I mean, we, we settled on a different framing. <laughs> but yeah, so, you know, bring the fight. I, we ready. Hi. Um, so I want to ask, you said holding space for these complexities of, of your father and of black men and also for white women, which is a new one for me. I'm going to have to sit here and really reflect <laughs> on that. Um, but what does that mean for you specifically? Because, of course, I hear it all the time. I use it myself, this holding space, and I'm still struggling to really know how I do that in, in real world life. And I guess this is a double part of slash, what is your self-care practice? Yeah. Um, so I, I too am always like, what's going on with these fluffy therapy words and movement spaces, like holding space and all of, you know, I think people should go to real therapy when they can. Um, but for me, what I want people to do in some of this to hold complexity. Um, <laughs> and one of the reasons that I keep, why you see me being like, well, on the one hand, Becky, and on the other hand, me too, right? The reason why you see me doing that is because one of the things that really bothered me in 2016 and that bothers me now, there's a level of polarization in our political discourse that I haven't experienced in my lifetime, and I'm not that old, but I do think that there's this, this way in which there were other moments where we could sort of at least engage each other with levels of reason and nuance. And instead, what I think part of social, what, what the thing, the platform thing with social media has done is it has given everyone a platform and so everybody wants to be right and everybody wants to be woke or people want to be contrarian, right? And so folks are not doing a great job in this moment of holding that, they are, that, that all of this stuff is really, um, really complex. Um, to me, it resonates, like I'm trying to say it without saying the Hillary Bernie thing, but I do say it in this book. That, for instance, one of the things that happened to me in 2016 is that I, I was like, I'm a Hillary supporter. Um, but I'm like part of the movement for black lives. I do sort of radical political organizing as like an additional thing I do in, in terms of my day job. And I had lots of like comrades and folks I love being like, she ain't really about the struggle. She ain't really about the cause, right? And so like I wrote a piece and one of the things I said is, well, white women were property too. And I had like a young brother that I know say to me, how dare you equate white women's struggle with black people? And I was like, I was like, but it's facts though. I was like, white, you go look at those old ledgers with chattel listed as black people listed as property and white women were listed as property too. It's why women give away their last names when they get here. Like, I was like, this is the shit I do. I'm a scholar of this. I'm not doing woke Olympics with you. <laughs> and it was like, for him, he let the politics of like, the ways in which white women won't undo their racism trump the ability to tell a factual story that should better inform our politics. And for me, that's hard because I actually am still a scholar, right? And so I'm like, look, we our politics get better when our facts are precise, and this is a moment where we need to be really clear and really precise. And that means we need a whole contradiction. That's why I want to say to people, like, so in this book, you'll literally see me say a thing, which I know will make some white folks in here uncomfortable, but. I haven't had a, a white person come in my house since I've had a house, ever. So like my entire adult life, I, white people don't come over to visit. 
Because I don't really have white friends like that. Because I spent my childhood having white friends, and I learned what that was about, and I'm like, good with that. Um, so I say that, right? And not even as a, like, white people can't come over, but literally that I haven't, since I left high school, been in a position to build the kind of intimacies with white folks where they would then be, be able to come over to my house. So I both want to, so it was interesting to have people tell me, like, you came for white people. And I'm like, you clearly haven't met me, right? And at the same time saying, but I have some political commitments that are rooted in what the analysis tells me that we ought to fight for. And that's what I mean by holding space, so that if we actually hold space, everybody gets uncomfortable, right? Um, what I, and then for self-care, like, look, I mean, there's my, you know, my bougie black girl self-care, I go to boozy brunch, I, you know, go to acupuncture, I've got an astrologer, I go to church, I, you know, I got a therapist, um, I get massages, but mostly what I have cultivated in what is my best set of practices, I've, I'm learning to say no. I actually have homegirls who I call who are my no coaches if I, I struggle to say no. So I call them, they, I'm like, I really just, I'm about to say yes, but I should say no. Um, and, you know, they help me to, to figure out the words to tell people um, no. Um, and I take lots of naps. I binge watch stuff because I love TV. I'm a TV junkie. Um, but I also have figured out that the places when I'm most happiest is when I'm with my friends. So I intentionally cultivate relationships. I take trips with my friends. We do stuff for each other. We sometimes just fly places to see each other just because, right? Um, or we Skype with each other or whatever. So I, so if you ain't got money or like, you know, a tenured, you know, you ain't a tenured professor somewhere and you ain't got it like that. And I mean, not that I got it like that, but you know, I want to acknowledge like class shit, you know what I mean? So if you can't have, you don't have all the financial resources, then cultivate good relationships because those will hold you. And if you do have some resources, then go play. Um, play as much as you can. Hey, hey, everybody. So I have um, known Brittany for what? At least, uh, yeah, at, le at least 10 years. And um, we met in Sunday school class. <laughs> and I distinctively remember her being very passionate, always challenging the status quo, ask asking really great questions. And she would be so passionate or full of rage, if I could just borrow the word from your book. Um, that she would ruffle feathers. And there was one particular time that Brittany got so mad, she stormed out of Sunday school class and everybody kind of looked at each other and was like, okay, who's gonna get her now? Who's gonna go get her? Who's gonna go after her? But um, I just really appreciate that passion that you've always had. And I'm just now learning um, with your book and interacting with you that it is okay to be angry. It is okay to have rage. My question is, as a mother of a young brown girl, um, how do we foster or protect or encourage the rage in little girls, particularly in little black girls who aren't so eloquent, who, you know, who don't have anybody standing up for them? Yesterday we were on the playground and London screamed at a little girl and I put her in check. But now I'm rethinking that, saying, Sonia, how can you let her know that her emotions are okay, but do so in a way that it just doesn't take away from her or punish her for expressing who she is and what she's feeling? Yeah, that's a great question. And I love you, and I'm, you know, it's so funny that you're telling these people about me showing out in church. Um, <laughs> um, I talk about the church stuff in the book. I got some good stuff about theology and being a church girl, so I hope y'all will read that. Um, you know, let me go at it a sideway. One of the, you know, it's hard to write a book like this because, you know, like I revere my mama, but I, and who was a single mama. Um, but one of the joking things I say in this book is like, that one of the reasons I struggled to own my rage is because anger was not allowed in our household. Because my black mama was like, well, what you mad about? You know, and like if she would fuss and I would have feelings about it, it would just be like, fix your face. Um, you know, just black mama stuff, right? Um, but also, I remember, like, watching television sitcoms and, like, white kids would get angry and they would, you know, run out of the room and slam a door. And every time they would do it, you know, they would run, stomp up the stairs. You know, and I'm thinking, like, if I ever thought about slamming a door in this house that I don't pay for, I would just be dead. Like, my mama has a gravesite picked out. And so, you know, I always thought about anger as, like, a thing that white kids got to express. 
Um, you know, I mean, and look, and black people have whole stories about this. We be out, you know, white kid hitting their mama, they yelling at them, and we like, see that? See that? That's how white people do their children, right? You know? I mean, real talk. Y'all know we do that. Y'all know right. we do that. Um, no. So, mm-hmm. and feel offended. Like, you know, on top of that, you know, you be wanting to go snatch the baby. Like, stop talking to your mama like that, you know? Um, and so the thing that I'm trying to think about is, what does it look like for black parents to hold space at home for their kids to be? Like, is there a way that, you know, so I wish, you know, I wish that my mama would have just, if I were mad, like, I think I wish the standard would have just been, you can't be disrespectful, but you can go in your room and be as mad as you want to be. You can write mad shit. You can, you know what I mean? You can't destroy nothing, but you, you can have a space for your anger. And it just wasn't allowed because it was considered disrespectful. So I wonder if, like, what needs to happen. And so I know that a lot of the acting out that I did, screaming at folks, storming out of rooms, so much of that was because when I got out on my own and I had space, I was doing it at Howard, too, and out of classes and stuff. Um, It was because I was out of my mama's watchful eye, and I finally felt like, this is some bullshit. Everybody know it. And people, you know, and I'm going to, you know, I'm going to act out. And it was acting out. And so... I wish that I had been able to sort of just be mad sometimes at home, be even be mad with my mama and know that things were going to be okay. Um, and so I, I, that is one place that I think we can hold space for kids. And then even like maybe just creating boundaries, like, nah, you actually can't be out here screaming on folks because you're a little black girl in the world. It has consequences. But, you know, is there, like, then the the physical thing you take her to do to sort of get that anger out? Like, or is there a place on the playground that you go and stand and say, hey, you get to scream. You can't scream at nobody, but you can scream your anger out and you can have your moment, right? So if we give our, you know, like, I just think that what black folks have to model for our kids is a space for them to to know that anger is a healthy emotion. And it for me, what happened was, because I wasn't allowed to express it ever, but I had so much to be angry about, I always associated anger with destruction because my daddy was so destructive. And so I very much needed a healthy counterpoint. Like, well, what is the non-healthy, what is the healthy version of this? Because I know what the non-healthy version is. So I think a set of agreements, every emotion that you have is okay. What you're responsible for is how you express it. Like your feelings are your feelings, right? That's the thing that, you know, you go to therapy and they tell you, you know, don't judge feelings. I still judge feelings. I'd be like, that's a wrong feeling. The feeling is wrong, right? I talk about it in this book and one, I mean, look, because I want white people to sort of judge their feelings. Like I actually, white people be out here like, I feel like the world is changing and so I'm going to bomb some people and like elect Trump, right? It's terrible. White people's feelings are terrible. But black people <laughs> And to know that they're legitimate, and maybe if you start with it at home, then she already knows that. Well, I couldn't go off on this little girl, but you know, she could come home and just be like, "My mom won't talk. I'm having a bad day. I'm in my room. I'm doing angry art. I'm, you know what I mean? Like maybe. I mean, those are the things that I would think, and I'm not a parent, so I figure that you know better than I. But that would be my sentence. I'll just add that my mom used to have like a cuss room for my sister and I when we when I was like. I was like five, and she was she was nine years older than me. So we would just go in the bathroom, close the door, and we didn't know how to cuss. So it'd be like son of a shit, and you know mother 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 bitcher, you know just all these just random non sequitur cuss words just thrown out. But so that's that's what she did. So maybe you want to do that with your daughter. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, look, it will require sort of radical rethinking because so much of, like, black parenting is about, like, you don't want your child out here being a fool. And so you feel like whatever you permit them to do at home is what they'll do in the world. But for me, what was true was that the emotions I didn't have at home, I went out into the world and expressed them. And the the story that I don't tell in this book, but that sort of floats around the edges of it, I talk about, like, getting to a place where I was so overcome with grief that I ended up in therapy as a 13-year-old. But it was because from like age 11 to age 13, I was I was dealing with not just the grief over my dad, but also racism at school. Like I had a teacher who picked on me every day and humiliated me every day. And partly I didn't tell because I thought maybe I was doing something wrong, but partly I didn't tell because my mama had a temper and I knew that she would kill the white lady. Like I, my mama's mama, but you know, she. Anyway, I just I was like, I can't see how this is gonna go well, so I'm just keeping it to myself. But it made me suicidal. Like I was an 11-year-old having suicidal ideation. I was so angry 
because I didn't have any resources and I didn't feel that there was any way that I could sort of say like, something is wrong and I don't have the language for it. And I think like, one of the best things we can do for black kids is give them as much language as we can, as early as we can, and as much space as we can, because we just didn't have it. Um, and maybe, you know, maybe that's a thing that we can give kids. Uh, hi, thank you so much for your talk tonight. Um, I learned of a tweet today through uh, Charlene Carruthers and Black Youth Project 100. She shared a tweet from Oprah comparing the Parkland students and organizers to the Freedom Riders. And Charlene expressed just being kind of hurt by that, given like five years of Black Lives Matter and movement for black lives and sort of never receiving the same public reception that some of the Parkland students have received maybe in five days. Um, so I was just wondering your thoughts on that. Yeah, I mean, um, I'm actually, you know, I'm ex inspired by Parkland students, but I'm so inspired by them in part because I'm like, all of the grammars that they have for how to move, they learn from the movement for black lives. The lion, they, you know, I saw the other day, like, was the Washington Post being like, oh, they're doing a lion. I was like, it's a dying. Mm -hmm. It's a dying, that's what it is. Don't try to, like, clean it up and call it something different. Right? And so all of the sort of theater of protest that they're learning and that they're drawing on is because they, these kids who are 17 years old have come of age in a moment of the movement for black lives. Mm -hmm. It is the thing that has shaped their sense of what is politically possible. And I do think that they deserve credit for that. Um, you know, and I rock with Charlene. She's my people, so I hear her. And, mm -hmm. I, and I, you know, I rock for her. And I understand, and I think that um, BYP is, you know, one of my, BYP 100, the, that iteration of the organization, you know, they're doing some of the most transformative radical work um, that's happening in this country. Um, and they don't get enough credit for not just the level, the kinds of protests that they do, but the kinds of organizing that they do, this sort of creative, like, we're going to organize and get this DA out in Chicago. We're going to organize and teach people how to actually do healing justice work. Mm -hmm. We're going to create accountability processes that are not carceral when, for instance, folk in our organization accuse other folks in the organization of sexual violence, right? Um, and we're going to also be on the front lines of protest too. That kind of multifaceted genius is something that I feel is a gift to this generation and I'm really thankful um, to be doing this work in a moment with Charlene and her crew. Any more questions? Okay. Uh, two, if I guess, I guess if you got the time for it, real quick. So one of them going off on an earlier point that you were saying is like, what can I tell my younger sisters, especially like one's a teenager, another one is a preteen. It's like they see and they hear everything that is going on, and they see like. My generation, our generation, some of us are we're doing what we can, right? But then even even the younger ones, they're doing everything that they can. Like I can go, I can go off on on everything that my that my sisters are doing, but it's just like that feeling that it is never enough. Like even if they like they can express themselves to myself or to my, our sister or older our older sister or our mother, uh, like within the house they can express themselves but like outside it's just like whatever you're whatever you're doing sometimes it feels like it's never enough that's one and then two is earlier you you had your suggestion just for for a collective for white women but what also would you say for black men white men and everyone else honestly because that's not it's not just those four groups sure okay. it's not just those four um, look, if I knew the answer to that, I would be a very rich lady. Um, so the thing that, I mean, I'm with you. I'm seeing even my college kids who are just burnt out. They're trying to do everything. You know, we see institutions basically outsourcing diversity work to college kids, right? So the black and Latino students. Um, I think that the thing that you can do for girls is listen and affirm. Um, I really think that's it when you're a teenager. You can listen and affirm and you can offer frameworks, but some of the stuff they just got, they got to go through and figure it out. And they got to know that, you know, in some ways they got to know that we're trusting them, that the process of them growing and living into their own sort of vision of how they want the world to be is sufficient. Like the thing that young people struggle with is being patient. It's like sometimes when I'm in movement spaces, I say that and I'm not being dismissive. 
I'm not like, just be patient. Things will get better. That's not what I mean. You got to fight for things to get better. What I mean is everyone wants things figured out in the life stage that they're in. Um, and I didn't have all this figured out at 25. I mean, I'm 37. Like, I'm having to say to people, you know, there's all this pressure on kids in part because, again, we're in a hyper-connected moment where everyone sort of performs wokeness on social media. And one of the things that... And so, one, it's all this pressure. Like, the world is falling apart. It kind of is. But it, if you're black, it always has been falling apart. It's never not been falling apart. Um, but also this, you know, this sense that we got to get it right and do something today. And the thing that I say to a 15-year-old, I've said it to 25-year-olds when I'm in movement spaces, is if you look at the civil rights movement, you got to think about that thing not in days and months, but in years, right? You know, between 55, which is you know, bus boycott uh, and the killing of Emmett Till and 61, which is the Freedom Rides, that's six years. We're only four years into the movement for black lives, right? And then there's, you know, so literally like movements take years to build, not months to build. Um, and so I try to, you know, just remind young people that what, part of what we're doing is playing the long game here. Um, you got to be in the moment you're in and you got to find joy in this moment and sort of take it for so like sometimes one of the things that's hard for me at this age which i've learned in the last three years old apparently um is that some of the stuff that i see when i'm in movement spaces with young people when they're yelling about you know we're being silenced you know what being eight i'm like nah some of it is just that you're 25 and shit is fucked up when you're 25 because it's very scary and I would never go back to it ever, ever, ever. Um, you know, and and you know, they're like, no, you're trying to silence me and delete it. And it's like, nah, that's actually not what I'm trying to do. What I'm trying to say is that having lived through that, I can tell you some of this you're right about, and I'm inspired by you, and some of this is just your it's angst. And I'm never getting back on that roller coaster again. And you can't make me, and you can like call me whatever you want to. So I would say to you around that, um, just literally sometimes we just have to listen and trust that young people are actually working it out um, and remind them that there are other stages in the fight beyond the one that they're in now. And it is it is very much a long game. Um, and what I would say, look, the people that I'm most interested in moving, and I talk a little bit about sort of cross-racial solidarities, right? Um, you know, I'm interested in organizing with women of color, but I think those conversations feel really different if we're not talking about white girls. So I go hard at white girls because yeah, they deserve it. Um, and, but the thing that I'm, the thing that I say to brothers is, I just, there's a generation of brothers who get the rhetoric right. You know, I'm thinking about the, re, the reactions, Damon, that, you know, all of the black boy tears that I saw when you wrote, black men are the white men of, of black people, you know, whatever. Black men are the, you know, white people of black people, right? Oh my God, black, you know, brothers are still, like, I mean, this dude, like, left my church because he was mad that my pastor, like, liked that piece or whatever. Wow. Like, you know. So, I, what I want dudes to do is I don't want you to have the rhetoric right, and then you ain't doing none of the emotional labor. Um, so, we have a moment where brothers have access to all of the same sort of resources, books, internet sites, conversations that we have. And they, get, they have all the sort of language, right? I believe in intersectionality, and I'm a feminist, and I love women, you know? And it's like, mm-mm, that's not it. Um, but it's like, but then when women actually leave, you rush to the mic, or, or you don't do that, but you feel deeply resentful, right? You feel some type of way, you feel compa- You know, it's all the sort of feelings that brothers have, and they don't be acknowledging that they have feelings. And so what I want black men to do is actually work on their emotional lives a bit more, um, and find the space to work that out with each other and in therapy. And maybe in like real relationships with black girls that you ain't fucking, right? Like um, have some like black girls that you're just friends with. The, like for me, I, one of the things I tell young straight girls who ask me about dating, and I know that this question is not about dating, but it's relevant. I just tell them like, I learned a long time ago, you know, cause I like grew up and I was like, nah, cause I want to walk like a feminist man and progress, you know, and all that. And finally I was like, oh no, those dudes are the worst ones. The, Dudes that you should date are the ones who just like black women as people. Like, date those dudes. Because they might not be feminists, they might not have all the language right, but they'll actually listen to you, they'll actually look out for you. Um, they actually will, you know, value your perspective because they're just like, no, you a cool person and I like to talk to you. 
so that has become my marker is that I'm not interested in these sort of woke brothers or I'm not interested in woke white people. I'm not interested in any of that. I'm actually interested in like, what are the quality of your relationships? Because that's going to tell me something about who you are and what kind of life you're trying to live. All right. Can everybody give uh, Dr. Cooper a hand? By Damon's book, when it comes out, by Damon's book, when it comes out. I'm a huge Damon fan. I didn't say that, but I've been reading Very Smart Brothers for a really long time. Um, and so I just want to, you know, tell y'all that I think this is a dope brother. I think that he he is doing the kind of work, like I've watched him grow over the number of years that I've read him. And so he, I picked him to do this because I wouldn't pick any, there's a lot of raggedy brothers who would want the opportunity. <laughs> I, you know, but I picked Damon because I actually think that he is about the life of getting this right. Um, and I wanted to show that, like, you know, we can have real conversations about tough shit and hold space for each other in this way and that we listen. And so I'm very much looking forward to your work. And I appreciate you for being like a brother that I go to as a compass and where I feel like when I read you, then I feel like there is the possibility that black men can actually. Get into oh, wow. OK. <laughs> Thank you. Got me off a clip now. Um, <laughs> hey, you know, yeah, buy my book next year. But before that, buy Britney's book, please, if you haven't already. Um, and, you know, just to piggyback on one of the things that you, one of the themes that you kept coming back to is that um, one of the things that I guess exacerbated my, I guess, growth, if you want to call it that, is having for the first time in my life black women who were genuine friends and not people that maybe I used to sleep with or people that I wanted to sleep, like actually having women around me who were friends. Yeah. And that's something that, to be quite frank, I didn't have until I was like 29, 30 years old. You know, there are a couple of them that are actually in here right now. And, you know, so that, that part about friendship um, isn't just for black women. You know, we could all benefit from having more black women who are friends. Thank you. Yeah. All right. Live at Politics and Prose is a co-production of The Bookstore and Slate.com. For information about upcoming Politics and Prose events, visit politics-prose.com. And please let us know what you think of this program. Our email is podcasts at slate.com.